I love a good disaster movie. Do you know what I mean? I mean the ones like The Day After Tomorrow, or Twister, or Deep Impact. Uh, they seem to incessantly be on TBS, TNT, FX, on the weekends. At any given point, you can find them. I've always been fascinated to just visualize what humanity against the sheer forces of creation look like, whether it's massive waves or wind or volcanoes or snow. I find it kind of humbling even to watch these pretend disasters. Uh, there's something exhilarating, perhaps, at the thought that everything in a moment could be so momentously changed. When we turn to the Bible and when we consider what it will mean for the Lord Jesus to return to earth as her king, we leave the realm of fiction and imagination to enter into the world of salvation and judgment. We come truly to the end of the world. That's the topic we're going to take up this morning as we consider Mark chapter 13. So I'd encourage you to turn there now. We're in our 20th sermon in the Gospel of Mark. Lord willing, we've got about five left. Uh, so far in Mark's gospel, we've seen God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. And then for the past 12 chapters, Jesus has authoritatively healed and taught and worked miracles. He's astounded the crowds, infuriated the religious leaders, and shown compassion to the miserable. Though many thought he was merely an impressive prophet or a powerful miracle worker on demand. Since chapter 8, Jesus climactically revealed himself as the Christ, uh, that is the Messiah, the King of Israel. He's Israel's long-awaited Messiah, but he's also, Jesus says, the suffering Son of Man, uh, who comes to take up his cross, who give his life as a ransom for many. And both of these realities are coming true in Jerusalem. So since chapter 8 to chapter 11, he was journeying to Jerusalem. Now since chapter 11, he's been in Jerusalem, and both his kingship and his suffering, well, they're about to come to fulfillment. Uh, Israel's establishment will no longer be the focal point of God's redemptive plan. Their barren and fruitless life, as symbolized by Jesus' cursing of the fig tree, well, now God is giving his covenant presence to the nations. Uh, for Jesus is David's son and David's Lord, who calls us to give our lives entirely to God. And so we arrive at our passage this morning in Mark 13. We'll have five points, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Be ready, because the Lord is coming. Be ready because the Lord is coming. Now, all right, this, we're going to have a pause before we get into it. Uh, before we dive into this passage, we should note that Mark 13, as one commentator stated, uh, is one of the most perplexing chapters in the Bible. End quote. All right, so the Bible is 1,189 chapters. Mark is somewhere at the top, Mark 13, of most difficult so until Saturday at around 1 p.m., this passage gave me absolute fits. Uh, normally, the way I write a sermon is I'll look at the passage, read it a number of times, 
I'll take notes, I'll check cross-references, and then if I've got a few questions on a few verses, I'll read a commentary. And then I'll write my manuscript, and it'll take me about 15 hours. For this sermon, I read the passage a bunch of times, took notes, had lots of question marks, and then I read three or four commentaries on every single verse in Mark 13. And it's taken about 30 hours to write. Now, the good, good news for you is that just because it took me twice as long doesn't mean it's going to be twice as long of a sermon. Uh, but it is a really challenging passage. And the reason I say all this is because I want you to trust me and I want you to trust the Bible. If you ask me, who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? I think Mark gives us a really clear answer over the course of 16 chapters. Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God. And we should take our cross and follow him because it's totally going to be worth it because Jesus has died for our sins and we have the hope of living with him. The reason I can say that so confidently is because Mark is so clear about that. So today, with a really difficult passage, I'm just trying to do truth in advertising. I could be wrong about some of the details of Mark 13. But I'm not wrong about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So I'm just trying to be honest with you today when I say, yeah, I'm not entirely sure about this, so that at other times when I say, no, the Bible's really clear on this, you'll trust me. All right? So what's the big question surrounding this passage that I want you to be aware of before we read the passage? Well, it's this. Is Jesus, in Mark 13, mainly describing the events surrounding the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD, which is 40 years after Jesus was talking, uh, by the Roman army? Or is he describing the events surrounding his second coming? And what makes this chapter so challenging is that Jesus will speak about the future using near-term language, and then he'll speak about the near-term using far-term language. And so it's hard to know sometimes what exactly he's referring to. You be the judge, you be a Berean, search the scriptures, see if this is right. So with all that in mind, look with me, Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. 
but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. All right, well, our first point is found in verses 1 to 4, entitled, Setting the Scene. Uh, the first thing to note is how this discourse comes in the context of the temple and Jesus' prediction of its destruction. So in verse 1, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said, look how amazing this place is. And Jesus responds in verse 2, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The Jewish historian Josephus records that these stones were approximately 60 feet long, 12 feet high, 
and 18 feet deep. So the disciples were kind of right. These are wonderful stones. But Jesus' point is the destruction of this Jewish temple. They're going to be thrown down. Not one of them is going to be left standing. And this is a big deal because the temple was the symbol of Jewish identity, right? Uh, it's the symbol that Yahweh, the Lord, well, his covenant present presence resides with his people. Uh, that he would be Israel's God and they would be his people. Without the temple, Israel is nothing. Yet here Jesus says it will be destroyed. Every commentator agrees about that. Just as Solomon's temple was destroyed in 587 by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, so too this temple would be raised to the ground also because of Israel's sin. And so when Jesus says in verse 2, this temple's going down, uh, we need to understand that in light of Israel's history and the chapters just prior to this, Jesus is not just making a statement about, you know, building codes and what is going to happen. He's making a point that the temple's destruction is not some accident of international politics, but it is the very judgment of God, right? Again, just as we saw in chapter 11, when Jesus cursed the fig tree, it was symbolic of the temple. Or in chapter 12, the vineyard of God's presence was being taken away from the Jewish people. In these previous chapters, Jesus implied the destruction of the temple. Yet here at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus states it explicitly. So in verse 3, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew approach Jesus privately. And look at their question in verse 4. It's really important. It serves as the roadmap for the rest of the chapter. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? All right, so really there are two questions here. The first, when will these things be? Referring to the destruction of the temple. Their second question is a little bit trickier. I'm going to render it a little bit more literally. Literally, they ask... What will be the sign whenever all these things will come to an end? In this second question, I want us to know two things. First, they are asking about the end of all things. That is, they're asking about the end of the world. And this is so significant because their first question was about the end of the temple. Okay, so the, the question that threw me and Fitz all week was this. It, does Jesus and the rest of the chapter talk about the destruction of the temple or his second coming? And the answer to that question, well, it corresponds to the disciples' question, right? Are they asking about the destruction of the temple or the end of all things, his second coming? And here's what absolutely blew my mind around 1 p.m. yesterday. I was at the Batco's house. I came skipping down the stairs saying, I got it. We got it. It makes sense. You can ask them. Uh, in my mind, there are three basic options for this. I'm sure you can guess them. Number one, just Jesus and the disciples, they're just talking about the destruction of the temple. Number two, talking about the second coming. Number three, talking about both. Talking about these, they're talking about these two 
events. Here's what rocked my world, 1 p.m. yesterday. They are talking about the destruction of the temple, and they are talking about the end of the world, but not as two separate events, but as one event. In the disciples' mind, the destruction of the temple, the end of the temple, was the end of the world. They're not saying, hey, tell us about this, oh, and this other thing. They're assuming it's the same thing. And that, I think, is the key to understanding this passage. Why does Jesus alternate between talking about the destruction of the temple and his second coming? Because the disciples assumed it was one event. <sighs> so, the second thing I want us to note about their question is simply this. How then do we know which one Jesus will be talking about for the rest of chapter 13? Because in Jesus' mind, they're different, right? And we know they're different because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Jesus has not returned. How do we know what's, which one Jesus is talking about? Again, this blew my mind. Look again at verse 4. I will again translate it a little more literally. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign whenever all these things will come to an end? Okay, so here you're going to have to take my word for it that in Greek, the disciples use two different words to discuss when. Their first question is simply, when will these things be? But their second question is about whenever all these things will happen. And they use a different, specific word. That is so significant, that word, because that is the word that Jesus will use to tip us off whenever he is going to talk about the destruction of the temple. So five more times in the rest of the chapter, Jesus will use that word whenever. It's translated in different ways in the ESV. Um, in verses 7, 11, 14, 28, and 29. So when we get there, uh, I hereby give you permission in your Bible to cross out the word when and write whenever. Okay? I think that's the key to knowing when Jesus is differentiating between discussing the destruction of the temple and his second coming. All right, let me give one last introductory word because before we jump into Jesus' response in verse 5. The disciples were wrong to assume that the end of the temple meant the end of all things. However, it is true that the destruction of the Jerusalem temple typified and anticipated the destruction that would come at the end of the world. Okay, so there is a relationship between the judgment of the temple and the judgment at the end of the world. The judgment that Jerusalem endured in the tribulation surrounding it served to foreshadow the judgment and tribulations that will come when Christ returns. So it's with all that in mind that we turn to our second point in verses 5 to 18 entitled, Be Ready for the Temple's Destruction. You see Jesus' opening words there. Watch out that no one leads you astray. Even though many will come in Jesus' name claiming to be the Christ. Uh, immediately as Jesus begins his discourse, we encounter 
one of the prominent themes in our text, namely to watch out. So seven times in this chapter, sometimes using different vocabulary, Jesus will tell his disciples to be alert or watch out or look. And Jesus, of course, is telling them to look out because there are dangers, right? You don't tell someone, watch out, when they're walking peacefully through a meadow. You don't say, be alert, when you're, tuck- you're tucking your kids in bed. No, you tell someone, watch out, if they're walking through a minefield, or if they're ascending a steep mountain, and dangers abound. Brothers and sisters, one of the main takeaways that we are to have from Mark 13 is that we should watch out and be vigilant in our spiritual lives. He's going to highlight three things for us that we should watch out for. Here at first, Jesus says we need to watch out for false teaching, people claiming to be the Christ, to represent the Christ. And I mean, we're good at watching out, aren't we? I mean, we watch out regarding how much food we eat, too much Bedford Farms, too little vegetables. Uh, We're alert to make sure our pants match our shirt. We're on guard to make sure that we don't miss any meetings at work. But we can be spiritually careless, can't we? Spiritually lazy and neglectful. Uh, We find some YouTube videos that seem professionally made, and we assume that they must understand the Bible. Uh, We find a church that has good music or engaging preaching or impressive ministries, and we assume that those are, of course, the the best places and sources of spiritual life. Uh, Yet, brothers and sisters, we must be careful that no one leads us astray. We must test everything by the Scriptures. And here we come to our first whenever in verse 7, as Jesus describes the events that will lead up to the Jerusalem invasion. He says, and whenever you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end of the world is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and the kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Okay, so, right, this, this fits into what we expect. Jesus is warning his disciples that Jerusalem is going to fall, but here he is making the point, I don't want you disciples freaking out that it's the end of the world, because it's not. In 66 AD, a group of Jewish rebels tried to revolt against imperial Roman rule. You can guess how that went. Not very well. It led to the temple's destruction, And so leading up to the fall of Jerusalem, there were wars and rumors of wars. There were kingdoms rising against each other when Rome came to squash this Jewish revolt, uh, as well as earthquakes and famines in those days. But Jesus' point is that it's not the end, and he uses that same word end back uh, that the disciples had used in verse 4 for their question, to say that it's not the end of the world, It's rather the beginning, the beginning of birth pains. Okay, now using this term birth pains, my mom read it earlier from 1 Thessalonians. It is is not a generic term of just suffering that happens. It is a specific term that specifically called to mind 
the tribulation and distress that did precede the end of the world. Okay, so hold up. Scott, I thought you said that the fall of Jerusalem, the wars, kingdoms fighting, all that wasn't the end of the world. Well, yes, it's not the end of the world, all caps, but the New Testament is very clear that after Jesus' resurrection from the dead in 33 AD, well, now is the last days. Now is the end of the ages, the end times. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul writes, the scriptures were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Or in 1 Peter 1, 20, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. Or 1 John, it is the last hour. Okay, so this means that you and I are living in the last days. Uh, it's not the end, all caps, end of the world. But make no mistake, we are living in the last days. Which means that the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, to go back to Mark 13, 7, is not the end, but rather the beginning of the end. And 2,000 years later, here we are, still living in the last days days. And so what marks this last age between Christ's first and second comings? Well, it's birth pains. That is, in these times, there will be strife and struggle. The reason why the biblical writers use that phrase, birth pains, is because like a woman giving birth, uh, the pains are present, and then they get worse, and then they grow, and then they grow, and so I'm told, then they grow. And then the end comes. And then there's joy and relief and peace and tranquility. But until then, we are in the time of the birth pains. And so Jesus repeats what our posture is to be in verse 9. He again says, be on your guard. If in verse 5 he told the disciples to watch out against false teaching and people falsely claiming to be Christ, here in verses 9 to 13, he wants Christians to beware the dangers of persecution. Yet the danger that he's talking about isn't the physical danger. We'll talk about that in just a few verses. No, here he wants Christians to be on guard against the spiritual danger that comes with persecution, when they hand you over to death and to councils. Because Jesus intends to use persecution as a platform for the gospel. Do you notice that in verse 9? You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Apparently, one method that Christ intends to use to get the gospel before kings and governors and to the ends of the earth is the persecution of his people. Uh, this is just what we see in the book of Acts, isn't it? And look at verse 11. And whenever, there it is, whenever they bring you to trial and deliver you over, 
Don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Trinity Church of Bedford, our great hope in our evangelism and our discipling and our preaching and all our ministry is that the Holy Spirit would speak through us, right? Because how much insight and wisdom and skill do we have in and of ourselves into heavenly realities? Not much, but he does, right? He knows how to convict people of sin. He knows where people need to repent. He knows the glories of Christ. He knows what to say. And so, brothers and sisters, don't be anxious when sharing the gospel on the plane or when speaking with a coworker. Trust that the Holy Spirit will empower and embolden you to speak exactly as he intends. Well, the persecution of Christians surrounding the fall of Jerusalem, uh, and as we've seen throughout these last days, marked by the birth pains, it will be so intense that Jesus says that even children will rise up to have their parents put to death. Christians will be hated by all. This is what Jesus intends for his people to understand and expect. Yet notice verse 13. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You know, we've seen this throughout Mark's gospel. Jesus does not have a low view of himself. Jesus has an exalted view of himself. Sometimes people make the claim, oh, he was just a Jewish rabbi going around, misunderstood. No, Jesus says that you and I should be willing to die for his name. That's how highly he regards himself. And it's for our good, right, that we endure. Because the one who endures to the end will be saved. This means, friends, that on the last day, God will not ask how you began the race. It is not a question of how enthusiastic and emotional and sincere you were when you prayed to accept Christ. It is a question of endurance. It is how you finished, if you would be saved at the end of all things. Uh, To the children of the room, uh, some of you have professed faith in Christ and said that you love him and want to follow him. Uh, Know that as a parent, there is no greater joy for a parent than to hear their children say that. Uh, We are delighted to hear you say those kinds of things. Uh, Let me encourage you with Jesus' words here to never stop trusting him, but to endure in following Christ no matter what the cost. Next, in verse 14, we get another one of those whenever statements. And this time Jesus gives his disciples a much more specific sign portending to the destruction of Jerusalem. Look there. Verse 14, but whenever you see, whenever you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And then Jesus spends verses 15 to 18 describing just how urgent their flight must be uh, because of how difficult it would be. 
I think we're confirmed in our thinking that Jesus is here describing the destruction of Jerusalem, and he's not talking about the end times, because he specifically refers to those in Judea, right? Uh, These are the villages surrounding Jerusalem. It's a very specific reference, because Jesus is referring to a specific local destruction, uh, that of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. What is the abomination of desolation? Referenced in verse 14. There are lots of proposals out there. I think the two best are, number one, it, it could be the Roman general Titus standing in the Holy of Holies after he had conquered uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD and as the temple was being raised to the ground. But of course, at that point, Titus had already besieged and destroyed the city and conquered it, right? At that point, it's too late to flee. The carnage and destruction had already been done. So I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to. Most likely, it seems to be when, when John of Geshala, who was the leader of the Jewish revolutionary zealot movement, when he himself took over the temple and began conducting its worship and its sacrifices in the winter of 67, 68 AD. This was shortly before Titus and the Roman army came in and circled Jerusalem. So it would have given just enough time for those in Judea to flee. Now, the siege in Jerusalem was awful. Like every other ancient siege, the goal was to starve the inhabitants inside by preventing anyone from going in or out of the city. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us of the rampant disease and political backstabbing and military defeats and despair and even cannibalism that took place in the city. But here's why I think verse 19 is a break where Jesus turns to address not the end of the temple, but beginning in verse 19, the end of the world. What I just described about how horrible the siege of Jerusalem was, well, the truth is that's, that's, again, that's how every ancient siege was. So when Jesus says in verse 19, it will literally be the worst thing ever, worse than anything that's come before or anything that's come after, it doesn't really fit the burning of the temple because it was a typical atrocity. I think more likely it seems that Jesus portrays the tribulation and affliction of those days leading up to the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple as a type that foreshadowed the end times tribulation that will come preceding his second coming. That is the tribulation in 70 AD foreshadowed the great tribulation that will occur at the end of time, right? So just as the Old Testament prophets would often have a near-term and a far-term fulfillment in their prophecies, so Jesus is talking about tribulation in the near-term, but it has a far-term prophecy uh, fulfillment, I think, in verses 19 and following. And again, I think this is confirmed by the fact that in verses 19 all the way until verse 28, we never see that key word, whenever, relating to the temple's destruction. All right, so with all that to say, let's turn to our third section in verses 19 to 27, entitled, Be Ready for the Tribulation 
and the Son of Man's return. Previous verses have discussed the beginning of the birth pains at the end of the age, but in verses 19 to 23, as we get closer to the event, will those, grow, those pains grow more and more intense. Again, notice verse 19 says the tribulation will literally be the worst suffering since the beginning of creation, and there's been nothing worse since. Uh, this is apocalyptic language. And I think it sounds a lot like Paul's description of the end of the world in 2 Thessalonians 2. Okay, so I'm going to read that passage, 2 Thessalonians 2, and I want you to notice the conceptual parallels where Paul, who's talking about the end of the world, and this passage in Mark 13, these, these verses uh, after verse 19. They both emphasize... 2 Thessalonians 2, these Mark 13 verses, how wickedness will grow to incredible heights at the end, false teachers will do signs and wonders, and it will only be the appearance of Jesus that will cut those days short. All right, so 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. The church is regularly called the temple of God in the New Testament. And then the lawless one will, uh, yeah, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill by the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Brothers and sisters, I think this is the great tribulation that will precede the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in short, things are not going to get better before Christ returns, as if we usher in the millennial kingdom. No, the labor pains, well, labor pains get worse before the end, during this final tribulation. So I think that's what Jesus is doing in verses 19 to 23. He's talking about the final tribulation before he comes. Three things need to be said here. Uh, first, praise God, I don't think this extreme final tribulation is upon us. Praise God. Number two, just because the very end of the birth pains in tribulation isn't upon us, doesn't mean that there aren't significant tribulations and pains in the here and now, right? We live in this age marked by birth pains. We live in the last days between Christ's first and second comings. And so third, what is our confidence in the midst of false teaching and false signs, lawlessness and persecution and tribulation and pain? Well, Jesus nestles it in there in verse 20. Look there. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of persecution and affliction, has God forgotten 
you? Well, no, he hasn't. For indeed, even at the very end of the world, when it seems that all is lost and all humanity will perish, even then God will intervene to save his people for he chose them. Right? God is under no obligation to save us. But why would he choose you and then destroy you? No, his electing, choosing love is not based on anything meritorious or deserving in us. It is solely because of his mercy and his grace and his compassion. And so he will not let his chosen children perish. He will save them. And he saves them by the sending of his son. That's what verses 24 to 27 show us. Talking about Christ's return at the end of days. Look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Beloved, this is what it's all been building towards. Ever since Christ's first advent, this is the day that we, his people, have longed for. When the tribulation will end, the birth pains will end. Birth pangs will give way to new life. The whole cosmic order will be shaken, creation itself undone and remade as Jesus Christ, the Son of Man from Daniel 7, comes riding in the clouds of heaven. You know, at that point, we won't anymore pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For the king and the kingdom and heaven itself will descend to earth. The trumpets will sound, the dead in Christ will rise, and we will all meet him in the air. For those who have bent the knee to King Jesus, they will receive mercy and grace. For those who refuse to trust him, only wrath and fury remains. It will be the decisive day of human history. I don't think there's any way to, better way to put it than Charles Wesley in his famous hymn, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. 300 years ago, 250 years ago, he wrote, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah, God appears on earth to reign. Every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty, those who set at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing shall the true Messiah see. Now redemption long expected, see in solemn pomp appear. All his saints by man rejected, now shall meet him in the air. Hallelujah, see the day of God appear. Yea, amen. Let all adore thee, high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory. Claim the kingdom for thine own. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. Hallelujah. Come, 
Lord, come. Friends, if you want to be on the right side of history, don't listen to what the academics or pop culture or the politicians tell you. If you want to be on the right side of history, bow to this king. Follow this redeemer. Trust in his cross to pay for your sins. His resurrection to free you from power of the devil. He rose and ascended and he shall return. There is no doubt about his victory. There's no doubt about his reign. It will go on and on and on in righteousness and in justice and in mercy. If you've not turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, do so today. Notice also verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Well, verse 21 had said false prophets would lead astray, if possible, the elect. Here we see in verse 27 that it's not possible. For they will all, no matter where they are, be gathered into safety. Oh, brothers and sisters, you are never beyond the comforting and keeping reach of Jesus Christ. Wherever life takes you, should your life itself be taken on account of his name, you can be sure that on the last day, he will not forget you. He will gather you in. And so we come to our fourth point. In verses 28 to 31, entitled, The Temple's Imminent Destruction. All right, whoa, 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 whoa. Just talking about the end of the world. Why, Scott, do you think that Jesus is referring to the destruction of the temple again? Well, it's because Jesus gives us that key word, whenever, in verses 28 and 29. Look there. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. Whenever its branch becomes tender. In Greek, it is that same word the disciples had used. Whenever. Whenever its branch becomes tender and put out its leaf, you know the summer is near. So also, whenever you see these things taking place, you know that it is near at the very gates. Now remember, the disciples had asked, what is a sign for whenever the temple will be destroyed? And Jesus' point is that just as the fig leaves are a sign of whenever the summer is near, now you know the signs, like the abomination of desolation, of whenever the temple will be destroyed. A, a better translation at the end of verse 9 is whenever it is near. Not whenever he is near, whenever it is near. So as Jesus said, wars and earthquakes isn't the end of the world, but it is the end of the temple. And when you see the abomination of desolations, you definitely need to get out of Judea. These are the signs that you disciples need to pay attention to because in verse 30, Jesus gives his clearest answer yet to the original question of when will these things take place? So look there. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away 
until all these things take place. Friends, make no mistake, Jesus was entirely, completely, totally, without a doubt, right. He's speaking to his disciples around either 30 or 33 AD, and he wants them to know that these wars, this abomination, it's not a few centuries away. No, it's right around the corner. Just 40 years later in 70 AD, when Titus sacked Jerusalem and leveled the temple, as Jesus said he would. And so it makes sense then that Jesus says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You know, in saying this, Jesus asserts a prerogative that belongs to God alone. What is the only thing prior to the world? And Jesus is not referring to the sphere that we are on right now. He's talking about the universe. What is the only thing that precedes the universe? The heavens and the earth, the spiritual and the physical realms. God. So for Jesus to say that his words will outlast God's creation, well, Jesus outdoes even Isaiah 40, which says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah says God's word will last longer than grass. Jesus says, my words will outlast heaven and earth. So we should trust him when he says the temple is going to be destroyed. I'm going to come back. And so we come to our final section entitled, uh, in verses 32 to 37, entitled, Be Ready for the Lord's Return. Okay, so now I think Jesus switches back to talking about the end of the world. And we know that because verse 32 begins, but concerning, and that phrase is a regularly used phrase to denote a new topic. Uh, furthermore, if, in his previous, if his previous point was that he did know and did tell his disciples when the temple would fall, well, now he's making the opposite point, right? About the unknown day and hour. Uh, there is also conspicuously no whenever language. So Jesus says in verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Jesus speaks here about the particular time and hour when he will return. And we shouldn't blush that the son doesn't know the hour of his return. This points to Jesus' true humanity, uh, that there were things in his human nature that Jesus didn't know. So it is actually a heresy to assert that Jesus, in his humanity, was omniscient. He wasn't. Only divinity has that. So Jesus, who is truly God and truly man, whenever he was acting in and through his human nature... He didn't know what the weather would be next week. He didn't know the day or the hour when God the Father would send God the Son. And so, brothers, how, brothers and sisters, how should we respond? I think verse 33 sums up the matter. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Uh, you and I, we're like servants to whom Jesus has entrusted different 
tasks. To some, he's entrusted motherhood. To others, being an employee or a student or a grandfather, a neighbor, a pastor, a church member. Therefore, to translate verse 35 a little more literally, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the Lord of the house will come. Jesus calls us to be faithful, to stay awake in whatever the work is that he has given to us. For just as the Lord of the vineyard came back to destroy the wicked tenant farmers in chapter 12, here the Lord of the house returns to see whether or not his servants have been faithful. And so we conclude with verse 37. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You see, the final thing that you and I need to be alert for and watchful of is not ultimately false teachers or persecution. What we need to be most prepared for is the return of Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you think often of Christ's return? Do you sing often of Christ's return? Do you pray for Christ's return in longing expectation? Do you work hard laboring for the sake of the gospel, knowing that soon the Lord Jesus will appear? Do you encourage yourself when struggling with sin and suffering and doubt with the assurance and verity of Christ's return? Do you remind others that one day these tribulations will be over. Christ shall return and we shall see him face to face. Will he find you awake on that last day? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel that you would come to earth once in your humility and in your love, truly God become truly man. And Lord, we long for the day that you will come again. Oh Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would come soon, that you would rescue your people, your elect from these tribulations, that we would see you face to face, that we would enjoy your presence forevermore. Father, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, cause that day and that hour ever to be before us. May we live in light of that day. May that be the the north star of our lives. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your grace and your mercy, that you, the Son of Man, would come to give your life as a ransom for sins in humility, and we look forward to to the day when you, the Son of Man, will come in great power and glory. Stir up our hopes to that great day, we ask. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, we conclude with a new song today as we sing, Where Shall I Be? on, verses, on pages 14 and 15. Uh, this song is a meditation on the fact that, that Christ could come back anytime in your lifetime, in mine, when we will be caught up in the clouds and we will see him. It is a song of encouragement uh, to encourage all our hearts to long for and await and expect that day. 
So let's stand together and sing, Where Shall I Be, on page 14.